0: Now is the time, under the cover of COVID, for the Great Reset. For the Build Back Better nonsense. Essentially, to achieve the entire lefty shopping list, now's the chance for income, equality, all the rest of it here. Well, you chant yes, Nicholas Rees. But, um, you know, the Great Reset, he said the quiet bit out loud, didn't he? Look, I'm worry about you, Paul. Like, where's your optimism? Where's your hope for the future gone? Like, what is actually wrong with building back better? Like, why can't we learn from this experience and take a step forward as a species, you know, for humankind? What is wrong with tackling inequality? What is wrong with ending poverty? What is wrong with getting on top of climate change? Like, these are the that's things just... that humankind should be aspiring <laughs> you're not do any to do. OK, that's not what they're Creates the opportunity for us That's to do it. Well, I say good on you, Justin Trudeau. Okay, can we get all three guests That's on the screen at once saying. here? Can we all see all three guests at once here? Because I need to pick between Rita or Matt about who is hungrier to answer. What's wrong with Build back
1: better, Senator? You know you you used oh, to. I'm ready to go. Go for it. Build back better. All right. I hit the buzzer first. Um, well, I don't know if Nick's watched the Great Reset video that the World Economic Forum has put out. It's uh, freely available. It's under their logo. They say uh, that by 2030. They don't want anyone to own property. You'll own no property and you'll be happier, apparently. Uh, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be happy because you're told to be happy. So, Nick, send all your property up to me. Uh, I'll, I'll give you my address and you can send <laughs> it all up to me because uh, you'll be happier without it. Uh, this stuff is crazy, kooky stuff. But it, it also, Paul, I think it actually does... Uh, one one thing that the World says. Economic Forum and Justin Trudeau is helpfully doing is this is the real battle line, in my view, in politics here, between those who want to allow people to take control of their own lives and communities and run their own countries, their own states, their own local councils, like in Nicholas's case, the way they'd like to see them run, and those who are pushing for one unified global order that takes away agency or sovereignty from any individual. Because if we have one global order, you're one of about 8 billion people and you can't really control your own environment. Whereas when we invest in smaller communities and give power, to local governments uh, to state governments and to national governments you can have a lot lot more influence and i think we've seen a pushback against that the globalization order in the last 10 years and i'm very much hopeful to keep pushing back against that because the more we give power back to local and small governments the better communities will have uh, the more the more more investment more vested interest people will have in their own community and, uh, and therefore, the better decisions will be made. Rita, um, I think that the great reset, build back better—it's
0: the economic BLM, right? Mm-hmm. It is the uh, the mm-hmm. Trojan horse, mm-hmm. where the uh, the bumper sticker is great, but there's an awful lot of nasty in there. Oh, absolutely. All the stuff that
2: Nicholas said, uh, none of it is going to be achieved by the policies they're advocating. It's absolutely a cynical exercise to use a tragedy, to use a pandemic, a crisis to further their political agenda, which they've always had. This political agenda wasn't Born because of this crisis, it wasn't some moment where they they thought, "Oh, we can do things better." This is what they have been pushing for for decades, and they're trying to uh, use this uh, moment, this uh, uh, incredible moment in history, to 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 advance that cause. And I think pretty, you know, people are are pretty smart about what's happening here. You know, this isn't some. Uh, a genuine attempt to bring about
0: end of poverty and equality or anything else that's virtuous that you know, anybody would want. Yeah, I agree completely. All All right, right, well, I mean, well, I, I'm sorry Paul I've just got to jump I jump in because I, I really again feel for you guys I mean what a pack of sad sacks. I mean, what does your bumper sticker say? Build back the same? Like, we should hope... We love coal. My bumper sticker it, says, we love coal. That's what my... <laughs> 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 my, I'll, my I'll
1: send you some bumper stickers.
0: Yeah. My, my
1: bumper sticker, bumper sticker, sticker says, hold we'll on. I'll, says I'll, I'll, my bit, I'll level with you,
0: Matt. I'll, I'll level with you, Matt. I do carry a candle for you. I reckon you're a great guy, but you seriously, <laughs> pal, you've been spending too much time on the dark web. You really have with all that sort of World Economic Forum stuff. Like, you're lost there. You've just no, you're one too difference.
2: many click throughs
1: on the links
2: there. there. At least
0: yeah, one base, week. Yeah. I mean, this is a. Oh, so so, uh, so quite me an really, unhealthy, let me It's in their own name it's, it's, They put it out. But let me, they put it out. So let me that make, that it, make it real for you. About. So, how will you pay for Build Back Better in Melbourne? Well, yes, let me make it real for you. I'm so glad you asked, Paul. So, before COVID 19, on any night in Melbourne, we would typically have around 500 people sleeping rough on the footpaths in the parks of the central city. Now, during COVID-19, they have been put into short-stay accommodation, into hotels, which are empty into other accommodation which was available. And... We don't, and I don't think anyone in Melbourne wants to see those people back on the street sleeping rough again. And so now there's a so massive, are you saying the going is on and building Melbourne's new Melbourne's housing
2: over. stock. Did you just say the homelessness crisis so in the, Melbourne's so over so long term? Well, there will be no uh, homeless in the streets in Melbourne. Yeah, I, I'm not about to is make a, like a magic-
0: style, uh, there'll be no more poverty-type prediction. Yeah, that's what right. leap just said. A huge leap, forward, a huge leap forward in getting rough sleepers off our uh, streets and giving homeless people a home. And that's a great thing that's happened because of COVID-19. So we are, in that instance, building back better, Rita. Sure, but OK. The but is out, that a permanent Nicholas,
2: arrangement I mean, or is this a short-term thing? Is yeah, that actually right. you're pledging that there will be no more homeless people on the the street that will be a bed for
0: everybody who wants it uh, look unfortunately I cannot give you that roll gold guarantee but what I can tell you is that there has been a great reset in terms of homelessness in Melbourne so far and we want to see yep. that continue okay
1: and I've got I've got no I've got no problem with what Nicholas is saying that is great if you can achieve that and yep. as a deputy mayor uh, you can do that in Melbourne, fantastic. What I'm saying is I don't want those type of decisions made in Davos. I don't want international agreements tying us down, tying you down down there in Melbourne or me here in Rockhampton about what we can do in our own local communities. And, look, if you want to call a "bill back better a great reset, whatever, but the, the reset needs to be that we need to give local people an opportunity to make their communities better and not sign away our own independence and sovereignty to some uh, international body who are full of people who don't understand our own communities and don't stand, understand the issues that, that we face. Well, so all sorry. power to you in getting rid of poverty in Melbourne, but that's not going to happen from some, some meetings in Davos. It's going to happen by the hard work of councillors like you in their own local communities. All right, well, peace across our waters. You, uh, the New Suburban... Die of his I can promise you that. The toughest battle
3: of... Yeah. That was uh, really uh, mixed up... Um, the girl didn't believe what they were saying the great reset was going to be doing and um, that they were going to be giving uh, the homeless a place to stay during the covid and that after the covid would they still have a place to stay and um, he said the those that had one yes but you know, then she asked about the others, and he said he couldn't say anything about that, um, I still don't have a really good, clear answer for this Great Reset, so I'll have to continue to search, I, I feel it's, it's not as, it's not good, that's my general feeling, if I find anything more, I will definitely share it with you. Um, why don't I just do a real quick search here because um, it's bugging me. That's what comes up when I do the Great Reset Economic Forum. I'm not going to play the Economic Forum because they're the ones that are trying to take everything away from us. I wanna play something that tells the truth about it. About what this is going to be. I think this one might, let me see if it does. I'll be able to tell in a minute.
2: My name is Elizabeth Baker Keffer, and I'm Vice President of The Atlantic. I wanted to start just with a few announcements, a couple schedule changes for today. First of all, at the 10.30 session, we've had two sessions switch rooms. Can We Make Government Work will now be here at the McNulty, and the race workshop will be at the Greenwald Pavilion. Noon, the luncheon with Michael Steele has changed. Michael Steele has canceled from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Sorry about that. Be a political panel in place of that session, though. So, same time, same location, and that will include David Brooks, Michael Gerson, and Mickey Edwards. So, on to this session, and I can tell you, you are in for a treat. This is a plenary session with Richard Florida called The Great Reset. And not coincidentally, that is the name of his current book as well, The Great Reset. You might also know him for two other books he's published Who's Your City, a very recent one and in 2003, probably his best-known book, The Rise of the Creative Class. I hope that you'll also know Richard as a regular contributor to The Atlantic in our pages and on our website, theatlantic.com, and as a contributor to The Globe and Mail. Richard and his wife, Ronna, live in Toronto, where Richard is director of the Martin Prosperity Institute and professor of business and creativity at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Richard would be happy to take your questions at the end of this session, so we'll save some time for Q&A, and we'll have mics around the room, so please wait for a mic to come to you. He's also available to sign his book, so 10:10, right after this session, up at the PEPCA tent, Richard will be doing book signings. So again, brace yourselves. This is going to be a great session with Richard, Florida. Thank you.
4: Elizabeth, for that uh, most kind uh, introduction. And thank you to the Aspen Institute, the Ideas Festival, and the Atlantic. And uh, thanks to all of you for coming out. Uh, I'll talk for a little bit, and then I'm absolutely interested in hearing all of your questions. And I I will say, as an academic and a professor, um, I I appreciate challenges and questions. I I also learn much more from my critics than I do from my advocate, so don't feel you have to pull any punches, fire away. Um, I wanna talk about The Great Reset, but I also wanna talk about, and since I looked over the program, which just is absolutely amazing, I also wanna talk about some of the ideas in my previous work, Rise of the Creative Class, and and put those in some kind of context, uh, and do all of that fairly quickly to save uh, as much time as we can for questions. Uh, We are going through, this isn't your run of the mill, Uh, average business cycle fluctuation I think increasingly each and every one of us recognizes this Um, when the folks at the Atlantic Don Peck my editor there contacted me as the markets crashed and and we began to talk about a piece that became a cover story uh, there was a sense that something significant was happening but there were lots of folks who wanted to minimize its impact and create euphemisms uh, for what we're going through and i think the belief was that somehow through sophisticated use of monetary policy with a little bit of fiscal policy and stimulus we could sort of paper this thing over Um, when paul krugman writes that we are staring in the face of a third depression uh, you know, and, and that's not, you know, people who I'm also big fans of, Nouriel Rubini and others, you know that's serious business. Uh, so what I was able to do over the course of the past uh, uh, nine months was go back and look at the two previous analogous events. The Great Depression of 1929 and the 1930s, uh, and then the Long the Panic and Long Depression of 1873, and also try to take a look at some trends and tendencies, emergent patterns in our current society uh, that that may augur in or may help us understand the kind of economic event we are going through uh, and what it might take over the long haul to recover and engage in new age of prosperity. So that's what I wanna talk about. In a nutshell, our economy has changed dramatically. It, my, My own hunch on this, and others may debate and argue, and and that's always fun and interesting, my own hunch on this is this is the most dramatic and fundamental economic change in modern economic life. This is a big and fundamental transformation that lots of people have their arms around, but many others want to neglect or ignore, and that when there are big and fundamental economic transformations like the current one, they typically produce crises. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter wrote about that. People like Hyman Minsky wrote about that. Karl Marx taught us a lot about that. They typically produce very deep crises. Yes, there is all kinds of epiphenomenal reasons for that. The banks get involved in speculative lending. Developers take on too much risk. People take on too much debt. But the real underlying reason for crises and the only route to recovery is an understanding that we have not built the fundamental social, economic and geographic underpinnings that are required for a new prosperity. We built a new kind of knowledge and idea-driven economy, and will talk about that in a second, and we failed to put in place the fundamental economic institutions, social changes, and in my view, geographic and spatial transformation that would allow us to prosper. So what happened? The money went flowing into speculative endeavor, it went back from clicks to bricks, to bricks and mortar, to real estate, there was a huge run up in housing prices and land inflation, and we got to the present moment. Uh, Why do I say this is a deep and fundamental economic transformation? That goes back to my work on Rise of the Creative Class. Uh, For all of human history. societies have developed wealth and prosperity, primarily and principally through two mechanisms. Uh, For most of our time on Earth, we became prosperous because we inherited locations with abundant physical natural resources. Uh, We were on river deltas with fertile soil. Uh, We could hunt and gather and develop crops and become more efficient. We we located around riverbeds and natural port facilities And then, with the Industrial Revolution, we added a second, and perhaps a third dimension. Uh, We figured out that by adding to natural resources, physical labor, and using capital to prime the pump, that we could radically improve our productivity and wealth. And uh, economists have a simple formula. Those of you who are an economist who like to read economics If you want to understand where economic growth comes from, the simple formula handed down from David Ricardo and others is land, labor, and capital. Well, for most of human history, those were the keys to wealth. I lived in Pittsburgh for nearly 20 years, and Pittsburgh progress was measured simply. Man hours per ton of steel produced. Those were the metrics that were uh, equated with progress. But something happened over the past three or four or five decades. One, we saw the onset of globalization, and as capitalism searches out new cost advantages, as firms attempt to be competitive, as competitive market pressures uh, act on companies and entrepreneurs, the production of lower cost goods, manufacturing goods shifted. That's an old story. So what were the advanced industrial economies like the United States, Northern Europe, Canada, the advanced economies of Asia left with? Well, there was only one additional factor of production. Now, that factor of production has always been important. But now, as natural resources became less important, as physical labor became less important, that other factor of production became relatively more important. And that factor is a simple one. It's what each and every one of us possesses. It's our human intelligence, our mental labor, the human mind. Now, lots of other people have groped at this, and groped at this in very powerful ways. Over the past 50 years, we saw the theory of the post-industrial economies. Dan Bell wrote eloquently and powerfully on the rise of post-industrial economies. The rise of services, supplanting manufacturing as a key form of employment, the new economy, the internet economy, the technology economy, the information economy, and of course, in the classic and seminal writings of Fritz Malchup and Peter Drucker, the most powerful theory of all, the rise of a knowledge economy. Well, I looked at all of those theories and found them incredibly beneficial and only tried to make one small addendum in Rise of the Creative Class, but I think it's an important addendum, and I think you may find it interesting. As as natural resources which were in our physical earth, God given if you will, powered economic growth in the past, as physical labor, which Marx said, was something every human being shared, that's what made the working class, in his words, a universal class. They all shared intersubjectively physical labor. What is the fundamental factor, much more than our physical labor, that each and every human being shares information is something we acquire, technology is something we create, services is something we make, knowledge is something we learn in schools or acquire on the job. Well, I went back and read a little psychology. And if you read psychologists who are concerned with human development, one thing strikes you right away. The thing that every single human being shares every one of your kids and grandkids nieces and nephews every little boy and girl every little person every person on the face of the earth shares is our own intrinsic human creativity that's the real wellspring of economic growth and development and for the first time human creativity which always played in the background as entrepreneurs seized on new means of production as people developed new ways of farming as economies and manufacturing took on new forms and we invented assembly lines and scientific management that human creativity has come front and center. That is what we are dealing with. We have inherited an economy and a set of institutions, management principles, a way of life, which at every level reflects the old industrial order. And that industrial order has been collapsing before our very eyes for the past 50 years. Now look at what national governments are doing to try to rebuild these economies. Oh, we have to have stimulus programs that build us more shovel-ready projects, more roadways, more highways. We have to support the housing market. I'll get to this in a minute. But the housing auto energy complex was the pinnacle, the fundamental driver, the fundamental social and economic and spatial underpinnings of the mass production industrial order that is collapsing all around us. This economic and social transformation to human intelligence, to knowledge and creativity is more dramatic than any economic transformation that ever happened before. Now think about how painful they were. Think about the things William Blake wrote about when he wrote about laboring in the satanic mills. Think about the challenge Marx and Engels wrote in the Communist Manifesto. Think about the fundamental economic crises to world encompassing depressions major world wars and this economic transformation i would submit is a more fundamental break with the past than any of those others now now where is this conversation going on in what national capital are people talking about how to build new social institutional spatial underpinnings for this new kind of economic order That's the conversation we need to begin. And hopefully, my work in the Great Reset can help to ignite or catalyze that conversation. Now, I don't want to bore you with too many statistics, but I do want to give you a few which will enable you to understand the magnitude and scope of the transformation we have gone through. In the year 1900, more than 50% of Americans worked on farms. A growing number of us worked in factories, Less than 5% of us worked in the knowledge professional and what I call the creative industries. That's science, technology, research, development, entrepreneurship, management, the professions, arts, media, entertainment, and design. By the year 1950, we had become a manufacturing economy. Less than 5% of us now worked in agriculture. More than 50% of us worked in or around the factory, the industrial economy. Less than 10% of us worked in the creative economy. Beginning in the year 1980 our economy begins to undergo this transformation. Between 1980 and today, the US economy generated 20 million jobs in the creative sector of the economy. Science, technology, management, law, healthcare, arts, entertainment, media, and design. Today, more than a third of the workforce is employed in these fields. In some of our biggest cities and metros, it's more than 40%. Less than 10% of Americans work in direct production occupations. 22% of us work in blue-collar work broadly, which includes construction and transportation, moving, and logistics. 1% of us work in agriculture. During the course of this economic crisis, the rate of unemployment in manufacturing, in, in production work hit... 14%, 14%, and construction hit 20%, and the knowledge and professional and creative jobs, it's yet to hit 5%. Over the course of the next decade, we will generate another 7.5 million jobs in the knowledge, professional, and creative sector of the economy. Those jobs already account for 50% of all wages and salaries paid. These jobs are the driving economic force of our time. And we have to understand their dynamics and how to harness them. They are what has created the wealth and prosperity which has driven our economy. Now, people hear me talk about the creative class, and immediately they generate two kinds of criticism that I think it's important, because we're here today, uh, to address head-on. The first criticism I found fairly easy to address, it has come from the socially conservative right. And it, it hinges on a simple finding that my colleagues and I found almost now a decade ago, on the relationship between open-mindedness and social and economic and demographic diversity, and places that can harness technological innovation, entrepreneurship, and human creativity. What we found very simply, and there's a fellow named Scott Page who wrote a remarkable book called The Difference, and he documents this in economic theory. What we found is very simple, that creativity defies the social categories we have imposed on ourselves. Creativity doesn't care if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't know about gender. It doesn't know about race or ethnicity. It doesn't know about sexual orientation. Fifty percent of those high-tech businesses in Silicon Valley were founded by a foreign-born inventor. In fact, in a book I wrote called Flight of the Creative Class, I said this is the true genius of the American economy. It's not a big market or low-cost production or any of this other stuff. It's the fact that the United States always attracted the best and the brightest and those regions and communities that could do that in the United States and around the world gain economic advantage. Well, when we found, of course, that regions with a higher concentration of employed artists and musicians and designers and entertainers, and we gave it a funny name, just to have fun with some of my academic colleagues, sorry, we called it the Bohemian Factor. And then when we found that places with a larger concentration of gay and lesbian people had higher rates of innovation and higher rates of uh, income, the Gay Index, well, people went, by the way, I've never had my work challenged on the grounds of correlations being spurious. You should have seen the backlash that came even from the academy. And it's the most careful, and I, my colleagues did the work who were extremely careful econometricians, but the backlash was astounding. So what did I get? Does Florida really believe that people with, you know, street guitar players and communities with street guitar players and buskers have an advantage in economic growth? Come on. What he's talking about is downtown San Francisco. Silicon Valley is a nerdist stand filled with engineers who don't want anything to do with this. Florida has unveiled his gay agenda on society. All of these years he's been hiding behind this fascination with economic growth as he's foisted this gay agenda. Richard Florida is undermining Judeo-Christian family values as we currently know. Him. Now that was easy to beat back. But then came the criticism from the left. The creative class is elite. This is an elitist construct talking about, and in many ways mirroring the critique from the right, yuppies, sophistos, trendoids and gays, an economy built on a creative elite. That's all he's doing. He's developing the roadmap from gentrification. Hello? Did they read the first sentence of the book? Every single human being is creative. The key task of our time is to move behind an economic model where the creative talents of 30 or 35% are harnessed and utilized for economic gains and those very inefficiently. The true challenge of our time is to stoke the creative furnace that lies deep within every single individual. See, I learned that in my previous studies of manufacturing. When I studied manufacturing firms in the United States, in Europe and Japan, when I went to Japan and studied the Toyota factories, and the Toyota engineers told me in 1983, we're going to win. We're going to beat the West. Why? Because your model of management thinks the only creative people are the CEO, the MBA, and the research scientists. We know better. The real heart of our factory, our real innovation engine, is on the factory floor. It's by harnessing the knowledge and the intelligence and the creativity of the people who work here. Uh, and then if, if you'll just bear with me, the place I really learned this was from my father. My father was born in 1921 in Newark, New Jersey. My dad had to take a job in 1934. He put his books down in the seventh grade. He went to work in a factory in Newark called Victory Optical. Uh, my dad worked in that factory until Pearl Harbor was attacked. He put his tools down on his workbench uh, and he went and enlisted in the Army. Stormed the beaches at Normandy, came back. After the war, guess what? Took a job and went back to his job in that very same factory. Of course he found my mom, they got married. I grew up totally Sopranos, we don't have to go into that, but trust me, I still have the accent to prove it. I grew up totally Sopranos in New Jersey. Uh, They gave their boys the names Richard and Robert, great Italian names, they wouldn't speak Italian in the home, they wanted us to assimilate. We got scholarships to Rutgers College, our life trajectory changed. But I really wanted to see where my dad worked. And I would beg him to take me to that factory. And of course he said, Richard, I work in the factory so that you can have an education. He put me in Catholic school. Sisters of St. Joseph, I have the scars on my hands to prove it, trust me. <laughs> I will show them to you. Um, he said, I work in his factory so you boys can get an education. That's the way up in America. Uh, but I was a pain in the neck. And we didn't have to take your son and daughter to school day, uh, work day. Uh, my dad was smart. He said, on Saturday, when the factory is running overtime, you can come with me. I went to that factory in the down neck iron section of Newark, this giant perk factory, and my eyes were agog. I watched the machines worry making eyeglass frames. And as I watched the machines, my dad told me this. I was 10 or 11. I've heard this from every CEO I've gotten to spend time with since. He said, Richard, it's not the machines that make the factory great. It's not this technology that's key to understanding this place. You see the German machine us, You see the Italian men and women working here? You see the Puerto Rican and Latino people? It's the knowledge and the intelligence and the creativity of the people who work in this factory that create our livelihoods. That's the key. And that's what my work is about. How do we unlock? And in crises, that's the time the positions of companies, as Joseph Schumpeter told us with his theory of creative destruction, of cities and regions and nations change. And those who can dig the deepest and harness the creativity, not just of a creative elite, but can build broader creativity. And that's my first principle of the reset. My first principle, and I just wrote about this. Fortunately, the FT published it yesterday. (laughs) 35% of us, 33 to 35% of us work in the creative sector, 10% of us in direct production, 20% in blue collar jobs, 45% of our workforce works in the service economy. They're the people who take care of our parents, the people who take care of our kids, the people who take care of our houses, the people who take care of us at this resort, the people who give us a haircut, give us a manicure, give us a massage, the people who sell us our clothes. Those are the port of entry jobs that are equivalent to my father's job in the factory floor. We spent the better part of two decades making those jobs innovative and in continuous improvement and quality management. The next frontier, the last frontier of inefficiency in our economy is the service economy. It has to be the number one national and global priority for job creation. We will create, we have 60 million Americans who work in these jobs at low wages with no job security. My father told me a simple story. He said, Rich, when I took my job in 1934, it took nine of us to make one family wage, nine people. My grandfather, my grandmother worked in a back bakery, my father and his six siblings, nine people to make one family wage. He said, I came back from the war and I had a good job with a high salary. I could buy a house and put you through boys through college. We, may, we forget. We think factory jobs were always good jobs. We think they were born that way. God gave us these jobs. Do you know what it took to make those jobs? I don't need to give you a lesson in labor history. It took nearly 70 years of the most vicious struggles this country has ever seen. And then farsighted business leadership, farsighted business leadership and farsighted economic thinking that said, you know what? If we're going to grow an industrial economy and we're going to build an industrial economy, we have to create demand. And where is demand going to come from? The small group of people at the top can't create that demand. There's only so many yachts and Gatsby-like estates we can build. Only so many high-end automobiles that people can buy. We have to create mass consumer demand. We have to lift up the bottom. If we lift up the bottom, that creates the demand to grow the economy. And that's what they did. They began to see workers not only as a liability, but as an asset... First in consumption and then with the revolution in the 80s and continuous improvement as an asset in production. 45% of our workforce, the last frontier of efficiency. Well, I could talk all day about the rise of the creative economy and how that happened and what we need to do to support it. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about just one other factor. You see, when you hear the rise of a knowledge and technology-driven economy, Internet economy, information age, a technology-driven world... The first thing that people conclude is that, oh, that means geography isn't important anymore. With all this technology and wireless and iPhones and Blackberries and mobile devices, I taught at Carnegie Mellon for 20 years. Our motto was anytime, anyplace, anywhere. The death of distance. Geography doesn't matter. Everybody, right, you saw the ads, everybody was going to sit by that hillside with their mobile device typing in and telecommuting from wherever they want. The world is flat. In a flat world, six billion people can plug in and communicate and commute from wherever they are. You no longer have to emigrate to innovate. Community is framed. Towns are falling apart. There's a massive ex-urban migration. Not so fast. For every force, there's a counterforce. Everything in society. So as there were certain tendencies in our economy that enabled low wage, low skill, low cost activities from certain kinds of manufacturing to call center work, to move away, there was another, and I would submit, much more powerful counterforce. Why can't people see it? Why don't we have a conversation about it? Why is that conversation only emerging now? The much more important counterforce was the role of inward movement, the role of geographic concentration and agglomeration. I submit to you, and I'd like you to reflect on this, that place and community, that geographic place, has become the central social and economic organizing mechanism of our time. That our geographic place, our communities, our cities, our metropolitan areas, our mega regions, have replaced the industrial corporation as the key mechanism of e- organizing our economic and social life, of matching people to jobs. My dad had one job for life from age 13 to age 65. The average American changes jobs once every three years. The average American under age 30s changes jobs once a year. How do we match people to work? We match people to work in a thick labor market in a city. Place has become the key social and economic organizing unit, and the person who figured this out a long, long time ago was Jane Jacobs. I had the opportunity to meet Jane several times before she died, and we spent a long time talking about her contribution. Most people remember her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, her invective against Robert Moses, top-down urban planning, and the destruction of great urban neighborhoods. I feel that book. My father's house was knocked down in New Jersey to make room for a highway. When I asked Jane what she thought her most important contribution, she said, Richard, I think I figured something out that no one else thought about. This woman with not even a college degree, never mind a PhD, would never accept an honorary degree from a university. She said, Adam Smith had a really great theory. He called it the division of labor and efficiency. And with that theory, he said in his pin factory, his famous pin factory, you could go on and make stuff more efficiently and and, and, and drive...
3: Oh boy, okay. What a bummer.
4: Cost down and more oh boy, effectively and drive productivity up in a company. She said, that's a great theory of making things cheaper. She said, but the theory we really need is a theory of where new things come from. That doesn't come from a company. That comes from a city. A city is the place you can mix and match people where talented and ambitious people come, not necessarily with college degrees. Many of our entrepreneurs are college dropouts. They come to a city to find others, even unwittingly, and lever their talents, create leverage all around themselves. That's what Silicon Valley is. That's what New York City is. That's what Nashville is for music. As that great economic theorist Jack White of the White Stripes said when asked what makes a great music scene, he said, that's easy. In know, most fundamental change Jacobs insight. He said, what happens in a great music scene is a bunch of musicians located in a community. And they're competing like crazy against one another. They are competing for a new sound and a new look and a new fashion and a new image. And they're constantly combining and recombining themselves, mixing and matching and forming new bands. And then one of them takes off. It's the same thing that happens in Silicon Valley. Cities are incubators of innovation. They create a spatial division of labor. Diverse, open-minded cities are our key economic drivers. I summarize this in the book as the three T's. Technology, talent, and tolerance. You need to have a technology leadership and great universities and great adoption of technology. You need to be a talent creator, a talent attractor, and a talent magnet. In Pittsburgh, when I lived there, I often said the greatest export of Pittsburgh wasn't steel, but the talented, creative people it sent elsewhere. But to be a talent magnet and a technology creator, you have to be a tolerant and open-minded and diverse place. You know, I have a student, she just finished her PhD. She finally figured this out. A tolerant and open-minded place where you can be yourself, where you can express yourself, which has uh, an active sports and recreation scene, an active music scene where people have a free-flowing lifestyle, that's not just about having good restaurants and good shopping and having fun. That's creating the key signals that it's a place that you can plug into and make your career. And when she looked at the psychological data, she proved that in surveys of over 30 and 40,000 people. Places, and I've learned this the hard way as a dyed-in-the-wool urbanist, in our surveys with the Gallup organization, what we found is that a key element in the success of a place in addition to its urban amenities and street-level culture and music scenes and art scenes, which are all important and all critically important and not frivolous. People rank those things, not just rich people, low-income people rank those things as important as good schools and safe streets. When we did our surveys of New Orleans, New Orleans residents had one of the highest levels of personal satisfaction in the United States. They thought their government was ineffective. They thought their schools stunk. They thought they had to deal with crime and safety issues. They thought their city had a level of artistic and cultural interaction. Bars and taverns and music clubs that added tremendous amounts of life satisfaction. And their churches as well. Open-mindedness and diversity. Natural beauty. These were all things that were critical to the life satisfaction of people. Now, I just want to take a couple more minutes and then open it for questions. To talk about what I think is going to happen next in this great reset. What I think we're up against with all of this backgrounding that you've just heard, the rise of the creative economy, the importance of diversity, and the importance of place and community and city. We have built a powerful economic infrastructure. We have created the potential for productivity increases and technological innovation that people like my parents, my grandparents with no education, could have scantly even dreamed about in futuristic projections. But of course, that's all broken down. We have unemployment rates that's bobbling in the mid-9%. The real unemployment rate is probably 15, 16, 17, 18%. And Dave Bing, the new mayor of Detroit, has said in the inner city of Detroit, he believes the real unemployment rate is 50%. We've got rates of 25% or higher for people who work in construction, 50% or higher for blue-collar people. Uh, and it doesn't look like it's getting better. Our housing market is stuck in the mud, no matter how much money we throw at it. The Eurozone is in terrible shape, and anyone who even bothers, who has the stomach to look at our deficit numbers, uh, gets terrified. So what do we need to do? Our quick fixes didn't work. Our attempt to throw money at the problem and stimulate our economy out of it didn't work. Our monetary policy innovations didn't work either. Yes, they have stabilized and caused us to get past the worst. But they have improved the foundation for growth. We're wasting. Sorry, Rom, We're wasting the crisis. Now, what do we need to do or think about to get out of this? We need to keep our eye on the ball. We need to build a real social, economic, and geographic underpinning that can move our economy forward. I learned about this in the Great Reset when I did the research. I learned three things that happened during these periods. During these, these aren't just depression periods or recession periods or crisis periods. These are periods when we reset our lives. When financial reality sets in. When millions and millions of people begin to behave differently. The first thing I learned are these are very long-term processes. Anyone who thinks we're out of the woods on this needs to take a long look at the numbers. It took 24 years for real estate prices to rebound from their 1929 lows. Remember my dad? My dad was eight years old in 1929 when the stock market crashed. You know how old my dad was when he bought his first suburban house in North Arlington, New Jersey and began to participate in the great American dream? He was 40. He was 40 years old before, and we went through a depression, not only government spending, a new deal, World War II mobilization, and then another decade before the economy emerged on this great path. Looking back in historical memory, we shrink time. Same thing happened in the 1870s. It took three decades to reset the economy. Second thing I learned is that government spending is an important enabler, but it can't solve the problem. And the third thing I learned is that individual technological innovations, these are the most individually technologically innovative periods, the 1870s and 80s, and 1930s were the two most innovative decades. They blow away the 1990s in terms of innovation. But it's not just individual innovations, it's new systems of innovation, like Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, system of electric power. Like our system of street railways and cable cars and subways, like public sanitation, like our system of roadways and traffic that allowed our, our, and new housing systems. We have to build whole systems of innovation. And then I learned something even more fundamental. What powers economic recovery over and above all of those is something no one ever talks about except a small clique of geographers. They call it the spatial fix the spatial fix. It's not the technological fix that powers our way out of recession and depression. What they argue, it's the spatial fix. I'll make this real simple. It wasn't just New Deal spending that helped us get out of the Depression. It wasn't just World War II mobilization that helped us recover from the economic crisis. There was something that was more important than any of them. The rise of suburbia. The suburban way of life When my dad sat in front of that house and said, Rich, we live on what I thought was a farm. This was a farm when I was a boy, and I couldn't even get here because nobody had a car. We live on a farm. That's the nature of the shift. The suburban way of life, the combination of houses and roads, spurred the demand for all of those products of the assembly line. It worked perfectly for the old order. It doesn't work perfectly anymore. We need a dramatic break with the housing, energy, auto complex. Why? Not because sprawl is a bad thing, not because suburban houses are silly or tacky or people don't like them. That's all nonsense. Because if we're going to open up spending and create demand for the new industries that are going to power our future, if we're going to invest in new technology-based industries and new energy and personal and human development, skill development, where's that money going to come from? Why did Americans go into so much debt in the first place? We were massively over-consuming the fundamental goods of the old order, housing and energy and cars. The average American spends over 55% of their income on housing, cars, and energy. Add in education and health care, food, and what's left over. Herbert Hoover had a great phrase. You might not lurk, Herbert Hoover. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Before a car could go into every garage, agriculture had to become effective, efficient, and cheap. Before we can build an economy of the future on creativity and knowledge and productivity, we've got to make housing and energy and cars cheap. And what the book The Great Reset talks about is how that is happening now. How we can already see the beginnings of that trend, as empty nesters abandon their McMansions and move back to smaller units, as young people postpone buying a house, as our cultural fetish for cars begins to diminish, everyone from Nate Silver to many others are showing the decline in cars at a status symbol, as millions upon millions of Americans slowly but surely begin to the reset the way we live. We're going to build a new way, a new spatial unit. Cities were the thing that powered the first economic revolution. Cities and suburbs and suburbanization powered post war growth. We are generating massive new mega regions. It's not city versus suburb anymore. That's a mistaken debate. It's city and suburb. The intensification and increased density and concentration. Look at the greater Washington, D.C. area. It's of course the rebuilding of the district, but Bethesda and Arlington, the remaking of Tyson's Corner as a more walkable human of Americans say they want to live in a walkable neighborhood. These massive mega-regions, like the New York-Boston-Washington corridor, the Denver-Boulder area, Northern California, Southern California, where I live, the area that goes from Toronto to Buffalo to Rochester, 40 of these mega-regions worldwide house less than 18% of our people. They produce two-thirds of our output and 9 in 10 of our innovations. We're going to have to make them bigger and stronger and more economically integrated. We're going to need better forms of transportation. High-speed rail is one, and we can talk about it. We're going to have to tilt the balance away from home ownership, and it's something I've been writing a great deal about. Home ownership was the fundamental economic driver of post-war prosperity. It underpinned, it was the major economic and social and geographic underpinning. It no longer powers growth. It puts people in the poorhouse. It distorts our economy. It deflects resources where they can be better used. We found in our research that already 36 million Americans rent and more and more are doing so every day. In the most flexible and vibrant and innovative communities across this country, uh, our high point in home ownership was 70%. It's falling drastically as a result of the crisis. It's now down to about 66%. The Urban Land Institute predicts it'll be 62%, but in the most innovative communities in our country, whether that's Silicon Valley or LA in entertainment or New York, 50 to 55% of people own their homes. We have to tilt back home ownership from where it was and in the less innovative, the stodgiest, the most economically depressed communities, 80% of people own their homes. We need to invest in an infrastructure of the future, not an infrastructure of the past. Every Great Reset has seen the way we house Americans and organize our cities shift. We need to build an economy and a set of economic underpinnings. We need to take a set of public investments and invest them in the future. Well, uh, as a professor, you know I come from the Fidel Castro School of Public Speaking, so I could talk about this all day, but I promise to leave you some time for questions, so for that I'll end, and please fire away. There's microphones here near the front. Thank you guys.
3: Okay, um, so whatever you get from that, um, it sounds like a, a, a shift. I need to get more into um, this shift so he's saying that no more housing high-speed rails I'm not sure what he's getting at exactly Um, so I'm gonna have to look some more so you heard what I heard but I I'm gonna have to I'll look some more. It sounds like, uh, I'm not sure what it sounds like. I have to look some more. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.